Don't you hate when this happens? You're on the road, minding your own business, trying to get someplace, and you run into this kid, this unaccompanied, on their own, no adult supervision kid. What do you do? Sounds like it's time for episode 91 of Pop Art, where we find the pop culture and art and the art in pop culture. It's the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture and I'll select a film for the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your, you are not invited to my birthday party host, Howard Kastner. Today, I am happy to welcome as my guests, filmmakers and caregivers, Holly and Richard Soriano, who have chosen as their film, the modern day Huckleberry Finn update, The Peanut Butter Falcon, while I have chosen the German new wave, Alice in the Cities, both films about adults suddenly finding themselves on a road trip with a child or someone childlike. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. So to begin, Holly, Richard, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? Hi, my name is Richard Soriano. I'm a screenwriter and a TV writer. I wrote and produced this movie called My Apocalyptic Thanksgiving. It's about special needs and zombies. I've also been a caretaker for about 20 years of special needs adults. So that's where some of my experience comes from. I'm Holly Soriano, and I'm also an indie filmmaker. I have cared for people in some capacity for about 20 years, ranging from adults with special needs to kids to helping train law enforcement on how to help people with mental illness and development disabilities during a crisis. I'm also an indie filmmaker on my apocalyptic Thanksgiving. Well, fantastic. I think that background will really help with our discussion today. And with that, let's get to your selection, and that is The Peanut Butter Falcon. For some information about the film, Peanut Butter Falcon is an American dramedy released in 2019. It was directed and written by Tyler Nielsen and Michael Schwartz. It stars Shia LaBeouf, Dakota Johnson, John Hawks, Bruce Dern, Zach Gottsagen, John Bernthal, Thomas Hayden Church, Yellow Wolf, Jake Roberts, Mick Foley, and Wayne DeHart. Zach is a special needs man with Down syndrome who, for lack of a better location to place him, lives in a nursing home. But he keeps trying to escape and make his way to a wrestling camp run by his hero, Saltwater Redneck. After many attempts, he does manage to get away and meets up with Tyler, a fisherman on the run from some people he poached crabs from. Tyler decides to help Zach get to the wrestling school while both are being searched for. Zach by a healthcare worker at the home and Tyler from the people he poached from. Before getting to the film proper, I thought we would talk some about how people with special needs and even those with disabilities of all sorts are treated in film. And I think you may be especially insightful in this area because of your film and background. So what are your thoughts on this and have things gotten better in film? Things have gotten better in film. Just going back in history, looking at special needs, any disabilities was always portrayed as some sort of horror, as some sort of monster, and they always put them in horror or a sideshow character. So there's a great documentary called Code of Freaks. They outline some of the old movies like The Hunchback of Notre Dame or Freaks, an old black and white movie, I believe in the 1930s. It was pre-code, so it was early 30s. They've always been in the history of films. It's how they've been portrayed in the movies. And that's one reason why we chose this film, Peanut Butter Falcon, is to see how far Hollywood has come. In the case of Peanut Butter Falcon, one of the most important things Zach has, which is something they've been building up to, is the idea of agency. That's where he gets to make his own choices and gets to make his own mistakes. So often there's this whole idea that people with disabilities need to be institutionalized and people know better for them. But in Peanut Butter Falcon, Zach makes all sorts of mistakes. He's just himself. At one point, he's running around in his tidy whities because he didn't think to bring clothes with him when he broke out of the old folks' home. I did think that was funny. I said, couldn't Bruce Stern have thrown out some of his clothes so he could get dressed? <laughs> <laughs> that just speaks volumes about who they are. They are very spontaneous. They think in the moment without any planning. And my goal is to escape, and I would think that speaks very authentically to a lot of special needs that I'm taking care of. As I grew up watching movies, which is many from the 60s on, the issue I often had, these characters are treated as if they have some special insight into life. There's a film from France called The Eighth Day, which I actually would have paired with this film, but it wasn't available. It hasn't been available for ages. 
and in it, an uptight, stressed businessman finds himself on a road trip with a highly functioning man with Down syndrome who has escaped from his, the mental home where he lives. The issue some people had with that film, although it's very enjoyable and very well acted, is that the autistic character was treated like the magic Negro and the manic pixie dream girl, where they are there not so much for their own benefit or to be their own character, but because they have special insight into life. And they're to teach the other characters something special about themselves. That reminds me of that old movie with Peter Sellers called Being There. So many people came to him for wisdom, but he just very simple way of looking at things and there's some real truths to that that sometimes we overcomplicate our lives but at the same time peanut butter falcon digs into the idea that zach is actually complex even though he may not have the most complicated worldview he himself is very complex special needs they have a very childlike innocent way of viewing the world just like in alice in the cities it's partly from the German guy's point of view, as well as the child's point of view in how they view the world. Like in Peanut Butter Falcon, Zach is always looking at it, I just want this. Why can't I just wrestle and be happy? Yes, and in addition, in the films that I grew up with, so many of them are portrayed as geniuses, idiots of thought, that really only apply to some of them. Simon Haddestone of The Guardian said, Rayman was released in 1988. Watch it now, and it seems like a throwback to a simpler world where autistic people were geniuses, and no cliche about the idiot savant was left unturned. Hoffman ticked, squinted, and stuttered his way to an Oscar in a fabulously matted performance. It's easy to be demissive of Rayman, but a little unfair. The film was genuinely groundbreaking. Yeah, I would agree that some of the autistic people, although a small population of them, have sort of this hyper-focus into one area. Like we had two guys. One, he was just obsessed with people's birthdays. And he would always ask somebody new what their birthday was. Even if he'd meet them a year or two later, he'd remember their birthday. And it kind of freaked people out. Another guy, he would ask a calendar day. So you'd say like, October 31st, 2023, and he would tell you what day of the week that was. And I just thought that was phenomenal. I mean, it didn't serve any purpose. In Rain Man, they actually do find a purpose for his savantism. <laughs> and that is memorizing cards and being able to make money. That is, that is a hysterical moment because we have something similar in our movie, even in this great movie called Please Stand By with Dakota Fanning. She's obsessed with Star Trek. Why did you choose this film? We had a discussion about what movies are really good portrayals of special needs. It was between Peanut Butter Falcon and Please Stand By. What I liked about Peanut Butter Falcon, one, it's just a terrific movie. It's warm. It you know, explores what is family. And the actor is special needs. He actually does have Down syndrome, and he plays somebody who has Down syndrome. We got a chance to meet the filmmakers, Tyler and Michael, and uh, Zach and Shia. A film independent screening. It was funny. They made specifically this movie so Zach could be a movie star because that's what he really wanted. So he was the inspiration for Peanut Butter Falcon, Zach. When did you first see it? At the film independent screening with the directors and writers. I'll tell you a really funny story and then Richard has something to say. Which the writers and directors, they said, yeah, and they did these performances without any rehearsals. And Shia spoke up and he goes, well, actually, we rehearsed every night after except for on Tuesdays, because that was when wrestling was on. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, we saw in 2018, I believe, it had just come off of a South by Southwest Film Festival, and I think won Best Picture in there. So you saw before it had a general release? Before it came out in movie theaters. Well, this was my first time for seeing it. I remember when it was released in the movie theaters, but for whatever reason, it didn't quite grab me enough to want to see it. I think, in full disclosure, on the negative side, it's a bit too formulaic and predictable for me, which may be one reason why I avoided it at the time. It felt like that sort of movie. But I do think it has some fine acting, especially from LaBeouf. And when everybody is on the road and outdoors, it has some very nice directing and cinematography. What are some of your favorite scenes? One of my favorite scenes is the baptism scene. And you realize, why is Zach in Tyler's life? Or why is Shia LaBeouf in Zach's life? We get a little bit more background about his character, Shia LaBeouf. 
and how the sins of Shia are forgiven. The whole reason that Zach is with him is so that he can start a new family, move away from his sins and forgive himself for all the things that he's done. So he used to have an older brother who he loved and who he adored. The one night they were tricking out late and Shia drove home and fell asleep. He's veering off the side of the road, and that's all they needed to say. You could see the remorse on Shia's face. He has his back toward the camera, but you could see the weight that it's caused him, and he begins to cry. I love it because you don't need to see him cry, actually. You just see the back. What's funny about Zach's character is he invites everybody to his birthday party, but in this one, he gives his birthday wishes to Shia. That was a very touching scene. What about you, Holly? One of the moments that I truly loved is when they're floating on the boat in the water and they're putting Zach's head under the water because they're fighting about how Zach needs to be treated like a regular person making his own choices versus Dakota Johnson's character who is wanting to coddle him and caretake him. Keep putting Zach's head under the water so they can't hear him argue, which in a sense is treating him like a kid. But at the same time, it's also about saying how Zach in that moment had gotten his fear over water because if you remember earlier in the film he had said that he couldn't swim and then they were almost hit with by a boat so then when he was putting his head under the water he didn't freak out it was like a payoff for something that had been set up earlier and that's kind of how that film is when you watch it more than once you see these little things that are set up when Shia goes well what's rule number one and Zach goes party and then later they party which I guess was improvised by Zach there was one exchange I especially liked, and that was when Tyler and Zach are going to cross the river. Zach asks, am I going to die? And Tyler says, yeah, you're going to die. It's a matter of time. This shows the influence of existentialism. Here, You accept the inevitability of death, and when you do, you have to decide how you're going to live your life. And here Zach faces his fear, and he ends up, as he says, with a great story to tell. And I also rather like the scene at the gas station mini-mart where Tyler, Eleanor, and the cashier are there together, where Tyler figures out who Eleanor is, but Eleanor has no idea who Tyler is. So there's a nice little bit of subtext going on there. And then when Tyler goes out, you're a man on the lamb. And then all of a sudden, Zach elevated in status. Right, and Tyler makes the decision to take responsibility for Zach. Some people would say he accepts the hero's quest, which he tried to avoid earlier on. So then when you watched it, did you feel like it was as formulaic as you thought it would be? To be honest, yes. I pretty much was ahead of everything. Even the ending, I knew when he got there, this school was going to have been closed. Then they had the fight. I was never surprised, to be honest. It's a fairly standard, for me, road movie. Just to add to that, one of the issues with having someone with special needs as a main character because by default you are automatically going to feel sorry for them have sympathy for them but are we going to laugh along with them are we going to be surprised by the actor and the characters that's one of the things that can be challenging and we ran into that with our film my apocalyptic thanksgiving because we actually had a different opening for it it's kind of more the melodrama part of the zombie tv show but we realized that starting with that, nobody thought that they could laugh at the funny moments because it's a movie about special needs. Someone came up with a wonderful note of why don't you put the comedic scene at the beginning where they're going through the weapons on how to kill zombies because it's silly. And that completely shifted the tone of the entire movie. It seems like it's small, but in the grand scheme of things, it's huge. And by putting the comedic scene at the beginning... It gave permission for the audience to laugh. Right. Peanut Butter Falcon, they were silly over the top, and they had the drawing. And the way that they did the choking of the pudding at the very beginning is silly versus this melodramatic telenovela style of choking. What do you think of the director writers Tyler Nielsen and Michael Schwartz. Oh, I think they did a terrific job getting back to special needs as the main character. Is it going to be melodramatic? Is it going to be sappy? And there were a few sappy moments, but I enjoyed them. They really captured Zach's personality very well. Chemistry between all of the characters. Although I do love Bruce Stern, and so I wanted to see a little bit more of them. But they captured that tone very, very well. They were talking at the film independent screening, from what I remember. 
one day they just said, okay, let's go play at the beach and we're just going to get some shots walking around and stuff like that. That's where I think that they really captured a lot of good chemistry between Shia and Zach's character. I certainly agree. They do have a lot of chemistry together. That is one of the strong points of the movie. What about you, Holly? What do you think of the writer and director? It's really clear that they're familiar with that world. Zach was the inspiration for it. And it's like there's this whole idea that if you have special needs, you can't dream like that. And it's like, well, but he's proof that not everybody has to be Tom Cruise to be a star in the leading role in a movie. I just love that they created that. But I also love that they didn't make him a hero, that he just kind of was himself. It was clear that they had a relationship because he felt comfortable with them to try out different things. And that's something that's really important as a, as a director, as people feel safe to try out things. And in terms of writing, just to get back to your point about existentialism and what we do with our lives, Shia's character teaches Zach, hey, we need to live life. We need to learn to be wrestlers. I realize his motivation is because his older brother was probably teaching him that. This is how you live life. This is how you be a fisherman. Now, Shia has a purpose in that he's going to mentor Zach because living your life is so important because there's nothing but death around us. I think you make some very good points. The obvious inspiration for the story is Huckleberry Finn. It's a little hard to miss that. It's a retelling of the Mark Twain story, which takes Gott Sagan's goal to become an actor and replaces it with wanting to become a wrestler. As you said, Nielsen and Schwartz met Gott Sagan at a camp for actors with disabilities around 2011 in Venice, California. Gott Sagan, bless his heart, let them know he wanted to make a film with them. He wanted to be a movie star. So they shot a $20,000 proof of concept video and the two then received funding for the film to star. That's again. As I said, for me, it's fairly formulaic and predictable. The decisions that they made in telling the story, I think were more based on keeping the audience in mind rather than necessarily having a true vision. They're more based on what is going to get the larger audience in. It is their first feature. They did make some shorts. And I think that may show at different times in different areas, which first features do. The best scenes for me are the ones where they're out in nature. Whenever, like they're in the nursing home, the staging and the direction feels a bit cramped and fired and inspired. This also may have something to do with Shia LaBeouf not being in those scenes. I also think part of it is those two, and this goes back to like with our movie where our protagonist has this obsession with zombies. How do you make a movie about special needs engaging to a broader audience? Yes, you can have inclusion. Movies need to make money in order for more movies like that to be made. And so maybe because Peanut Butter Falcon was successful with awards and brought in a little more money, that there may be room to move past the formula. Most people think inclusion happens overnight, and that's not the way it actually works. The hard part as a writer writing about a special needs character is what is going through their mind. Again, God bless them. They can act, but they still are sort of limited in what they can portray. Even the title, Peanut Butter Falcon, shows Zack's mind. There's another movie, Please Stand By, which, again, is a window into the character's mind. It's someone with autism who's obsessed with Star Trek. Our movie, called My Apocalyptic Thanksgiving, is a title that I came up with to reflect what's going on in the special needs mind. And that's how they view the world. Well, I can't argue with the filmmakers making the decisions they did because it did make money. It was a very successful film. The ending, the producers, the many men, came to them and said, we think it should end without seeing Tyler, Shia LaBeouf, in the truck going off, implying that he didn't survive. And the filmmakers just nixed that and said no. And I'm going, well, if you want to make money, you better have him survive. (laughs) It's probably not going to make as much money. There are two ways you can end it. One, you can explain the ending. Or two, you can end it emotionally in a satisfying way for the audience. Yes, they're going home as a family. Yes, it's open-ended. I can see both sides. Going to what Richard said earlier, it's not about all people with special needs. This is more about specifically addressing people with special needs and disabilities who are in facilities because that's very different than somebody who is living their life independently where they don't maybe need as much help with their day-to-day. And that's that question of how much do you want those people shuttered away? To what extent do people need to be mainstreamed and want to be mainstreamed? And just to add to that, throughout the history of film, 
many times the person who is disabled, mentally ill, or special needs, they start in an institute, and the answer to the question is, should they or should they not be institutionalized, and is the institution good for them? So in this case, Peanut Butter Falcon, he starts off in the institution, and what does Dakota want to do is put him back in the institution, just like Rain Man or Sling Blade. They start from an institution, and they return to an institution. So this sort of broke away from that. I did have some questions. At the end, the indication is that Tyler and Eleanor are going to go off together with Zach and start their own family. And I'm going, I don't think you can just do that. I think there are a lot of legal steps. You could also talk about the movie Alice in the Cities, where technically the police officer wouldn't have just gone up to the guy and said, hey, you know, bring the girl to her mom. He would have arrested the guy for kidnapping. There's some... Yes. <laughs> Alice in the Cities is much of its time. A lot of things that happened in that movie would never happen today. So you do actually have some good points there. And we'll talk about how Alice in the Cities could never be made that way. Yeah. Today. Getting back to Peanut Butter Falcon, I did have a couple of ways you could answer that ending. Is that one, they're just taking a road trip. She and Zach are escorting Chaya to Florida because that's where he wanted to go. Whether or not she's coming back with Zach, you don't know. It's not answered. So you could say, one, all three of them are moving there. Or she and Zach are going there to bring Shia. Or is she going to drop Zach and Shia off and then go back to Florida? Because they do state very quickly in one sentence that she inherited a bunch of money. She does not have a family because, one, her husband died and that's how they bond. And two, since she has a lot of family, she must have inherited it from somebody, whether it's her husband or her family. She doesn't have a family. Another area I would like to talk about is an idea I have that I call genre meets diversity, and I've been pushing this on my podcast. I divide the philosophical aspects of film into four periods. There's modernism, which began disappearing after the end of World War II, then you got existentialism, then you got postmodernism, and then you get post-postmodernism. And I think we're coming to the end of post-postmodernism, and we're searching for a new overall governing aesthetic and philosophy. And I think we're entering the world of genre meets diversity, which to me is a logical extension of post and post-postmodernism in which familiar tropes and the historical genre of movies are achieving new life by combining them with diverse ideas and characters. So you have horror movies like Get Out and Nope and rom-coms like Love, Simon, Crazy Rich Asians, The Big Sick and Bros and superhero films like Wonder Woman and Black Panther. And cast being more diverse, even period pieces like The Favorite and Murder on the Orient Express. And here we have one of the oldest strips in movie history, which is a road movie, but the lead is a special needs character. And I think you do this and even go a little farther in your film, My Apocalyptic Thanksgiving, in having a special needs character at the center. And then you have this movie within a movie with a female lead that centers around the living dead, a self-conscious parody of the genre, which is very postmodern. Oh, well, thanks. It reminds me of something our director of photography, colorist, and visual effects artist who works on our film, her name is Rachel Dunn. And one of the things that she talked about is that in Hollywood, you can bring an independent film which follows nothing, or you can bring a formula film and say, if you're exec and you bring those two, if the independent film fails, you lose your job. But if you use the formula, you'll be able to keep your job because of the fact that you can always say, well, it's the formula. And if you think about it, Hollywood spends a lot of money to make these and so they want to maybe have some sure bets about having a return on their investment. It's still a business and if you don't make money, you have to shut your doors. Maybe that's one of the reasons why they're bringing diversity to the tried and true formulas as a way to reboot them and update them. That's a great point. And Howard, you have a great point too, like genre and diversity. Right now, there's just special needs films or disability film festivals. We attended one in Cannes, France, Entre de Marche, and FYI, I won Best Screenplay in the film festival. And our actor won Best Actor. <laughs> our actor won Best Actor. He was giving this great speech, the director of the film festival. He says, you know, one day we won't have to have disability film festivals. We will go back to just having film festivals. And I thought that that was a really great point. And I think that's why we're mashing up a lot of the uh, genres and diversity. It's sort of spoon feeding you diversity without having to shove it in your face. 
we also had that very delicate balance of, oh my God, you just get attacked. It wasn't good enough or it wasn't special needs enough or it didn't say this or it didn't say that and you can't make fun of them and you can't say the R word. One guy, Breaking Bad, Walter White's son, but he actually has cerebral palsy. They just portray him as Walter White's son. He got flack from it online that it wasn't authentic enough. Perhaps the strongest part of the movie is the acting. It's mainly a two-person story, though Eleanor does come in later. Overall, I thought that the acting was really good, and I thought that they really played off of each other really well. Shia brought just enough of an edge to his performance. Zach brought just enough silliness but seriousness and even had moments of just being a downright jerk. That was really good because it showed a range. I felt like Shia also showed a real range. He had quiet moments through most of it, which allowed Zach to shine. Some actors have a hard time with that. That's also what we did with ours, where the caregiver in our movie has more of a quiet performance so that the guy playing our lead can shine. During the talk, Shia revealed personally that he was very sorrowful for his sins, his past, whatever they may be, at the film independent screening. And I think that this movie was sort of a baptism for him. And I think he brought that edge because if you look at all of his previous work, he tends to be a hothead in, in some of his characters. Brings that into this. Again, the chemistry between him and Zach is phenomenal. Can Zach carry a whole scene by himself? Most of the scenes were Zach with Shia, so it's very few moments <laughs> escaping through the window or running down in his tidy whities which I just love that shot. So he does have to carry some of the scenes by himself, and they all do a phenomenal job. Yes, I think they definitely work very well together, especially the more it went on. LaBeouf has an ability, I think, to make his lines sound like he just made them up. He's very smooth-sounding improvised, and he works well with other actors. And I think much of it was improvised the more it went on. You do speak of LaBeouf having issues. And yes, he is known for trying to deal with personal demons, and he's tried to exercise them in various ways in movies he's made, also through his performance art. He also seems to be working out his issues through a spiritual process. His mother was Jewish and his father Christian. He was both baptized out of our mitzvah but in his essay to the 2004 book by judea pearl i am jewish leboeuf said that he has a personal relationship with god that happens to work within the confines of judaism and then 10 years later in interview magazine he said that i found god doing the film fury i became a christian man brad pitt was really instrumental in guiding my head through this then in 2022 in an interview with bishop robert Barron, he said he had fallen in love with the catholic faith while studying for the titular role of the film padre pio a lot of people reported this as a conversion, but the National Catholic Register said LaBeouf had not completed a formal path to reception into the Catholic Church. And I think this is interesting when it comes to road movies, which we'll talk more of next, and that he is a person who is existentially lost, trying to come to terms with life through a spiritual path. In this movie, he also plays someone lost who finds himself in the soul by helping Zach. I also think that Zach, who played Zach, taught a nice ability to sound natural with the lines. He doesn't have those mannerisms or tics that are often stereotyped onto people with special needs. He does have the monotone, though at times, I don't know how to explain it, he does a very good job of making the monotone, giving inflections to certain words of the others so that it's not just a monotone, you can feel the emotion that he's trying to portray. We wanted to cast special needs adults in our movie. They weren't trained actors, but it was funny because when we filmed them, (laughs) we would say, don't look at the camera, look at this guy, and then just continue eating your food. But as soon as I moved the camera, they would turn their heads and they would just stare at the camera or stare at me moving the camera. So you really need to be trained as an actor (laughs) to be in a movie. And I guess he was because they met him at a theater camp of some sort or a camp for disabilities where he was being trained in the theater. Peter de Bruges of Variety praised the performances saying, in God's sake, we get a performer who appears to be playing an earnest and filtered version of himself. Well, in LaBeouf, there are layers at play. Oddly enough, both approaches result in a kind of spontaneous unpredictability. 
for me, Dakota Johnson, though, really isn't given much to do. And In so many ways, this is a bromance. I mean, I think Dakota Johnson is a wonderful actress. She's done some interesting choices, like Fifty Shades of Grey. I felt like she brought a lot to that role. Overall, I think Dakota Johnson does do good with what she has, but you're absolutely right. But I think the supporting cast is also very nice. The people, the guy at the Mini Mart and then uh, other people like that. Yeah, the Mini Mart was phenomenal. <laughs> I also would like to point out the cinematography, which is by Nigel Luke. It, it feels like he's a rising talent. He hasn't done a lot, but after this, he did do the unbearable weight of massive talents. He might be on the way up. What he was able to do with his shots is that even though it's a small movie, what he was able to capture helped it feel like it had more room to breathe. Right. He's very good at getting the environment, especially when they're outside. Sherry Linden of The Hollywood Reporter wrote, Gottsagen's sensibility infuses the modern-day fable with an engaging forthrightness. But the unequivocal material often sticks close to the surface, and the film built around him, for all its physical sweep, can feel constricted, but obviously. And I guess that's sort of how I feel, that the movie is obvious, but yes, Gottsagen and, and LeBeau are really very good, and they do help elevate the movie. They take the formula, and it's, in some ways it's sort of like Scream, where there's a self-awareness that there is a formula. <laughs> I just wanted to add a couple of points. In today's environment, you have a girl who's a Victoria's Secret model who has Down syndrome. You also have a Gerber, which features a Down syndrome baby on the cover. It's not just Hollywood. It is all over the place that you're seeing a lot more diversity. Exactly. With that, here's more information about the movie. It cost $6.2 million to make and made $23.3 million at the box office. It became a sleeper hit in the highest grossing independent film of 2019. The geography of coastal North Carolina is not dramatized accurately. Aiden, North Carolina isn't on the coast. It's in Pitt County. This means the characters would have had to travel via the Pamlico Sound, the second largest U.S. estuary, then would have had to sail up the Tar River. Tyler Nielsen also is one of the world's top hand models and enjoys making easy money, doubling his hands for actors like Brad Pitt. Although the film received no Academy Award nominations, the both and Gottsagen did appear together at the Oscars. Gottsagen became the first individual with Down syndrome to present an Academy Award when he and the both gave out the best live action short film on February 9, 2020. Well, with that, let's get to my selection, and that is Alice in the Cities. First, some information about the film. Alice in the Cities is a German New Wave film released in 1974. It was directed by Wim Wenders and written by Wenders and Weit von Furstenberg. It stars Rudiger Vogler, Jella Rotlander, and Lisa Kreutzer. A German journalist traveling the U.S. South returns to New York City feeling lost and having yet to finish his story. When he buys a ticket to return to Germany, the airline strike in his native country means he has to fly to Amsterdam. At the ticket counter, he meets a fellow German woman and her daughter, Alice. They bond overnight while waiting for the plane. But the next morning, the woman takes off and asks the journalist to help her daughter get to Amsterdam, where she will meet them. But when the mother doesn't show up in Amsterdam, the journalist reluctantly takes on the responsibility of getting Alice to her grandmother in Germany. Usually I start off with what do you think of the pairing of the two films and comparing them. But I'm going to postpone that for a little bit because I'm going to approach that a different way. My first question here is going to be, when did you first see the film? Which I think is just recently from what I understand. And what did you think? It's interesting because it reminded us a little bit of our director of our film, My Apocalyptic Thanksgiving. Charlie Unger did a film called Mr. Lucky, and it's also black and white, and it's shot on the same type of film. And it's about a photographer who goes after a woman and ends up as a romance. But it's kind of that whole keeping a movie small while exploring bigger subjects. A more recent example would be Pig where there isn't necessarily lots of big, huge set pieces, but yet there's an emotional story that pulls it all along. You have these people, and you see the journalist lie at the beginning, where he says, yeah, the trip changed me. So then, of course, he later admits, oh, I didn't. the trip didn't do anything for me. So then he's forced with this little girl who gets him to become aware of his own humanity, and he does become changed, just not the trip he planned. So did you two like the film or not like the film? But how did you react to it? I would say that it wasn't my cup of tea, to put it <laughs> politely. <laughs> I think partly because the whole thing of let me find myself. I'm Filipino, grew up in the United States, and I see a lot of Americans go to Europe to quote-unquote find themselves. And I never really understood that. Well, that makes sense. 
it's not that I didn't like it. I like what it got me to think about because I realized I could also do something myself like that as a filmmaker. Why not? Maybe not involve child protective services, but <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because well, I was thinking it was a different time. It was a different absolutely oh my god you can say that again and i was listening to a biography uh the secret history of star wars and george lucas in his early days as a filmmaker he always wanted to just take the camera and just take a road trip and see what kind of story that they came up with and i think that this would kind of be something along the lines of what he would come up with I can't remember when I first saw it. Certainly not when it first came out. It's what is called the New German Cinema, though at the time we didn't call it that. We called it the German New Wave. I'm not sure when they started calling it the New German Cinema. I had trouble getting into the German New Wave films because first two I saw was one by Wim Wenders called The American Friend. And then another film, and I can't seem to locate it. I thought it was like Werner Herzog, and they were at a repertory company, and I hated them both so much that it took me a long time to get back into the German New Wave. I even watched The American Friend by now at least three times, trying to figure out why people liked it and why I don't. I figured out why I don't. It's because Dennis Hoffer is one of the leads, and he is just horrible. And there's a better version of the story with John Malkovich called Ripley's Game. I did get back into them. For Herzog, it was through the movies Strodzak and Nosferatu. For Ven Vendors, it was actually Alice of the Cities. So I probably saw it sometime in the 80s when I was expanding the kind of movies I watched. I very much liked it. I see that it's a bit dated, maybe, in the way it looks. It's obviously influenced by the French New Wave and Italian neorealism, which all the German New Wave was. And it may feel a bit slow, but by the time it was over, I was emotionally moved. I really liked it the first time I saw it. It was something different. I'd never seen something like this. I was going through an existential period. So, you know, what can you do? I think this is also one of those things where it's the human dilemma of is it your brain that drives you or is it your heart that drives you? And it's the intellect. It's a different kind of thing than when it's your heart. And there's that battle between the two. And that's kind of what happens in the story of Alice in the Cities where he is struggling with his intellect versus his heart. The little girl represents his heart and maybe the pictures he's taking represents his intellect and he stops taking them when he's around the little girl and he's able to start to write. I mean, as a writer, I have that battle um, finding his purpose and when he had the little girl, it's like he had a purpose. Do you have any favorite scenes or any scenes that you especially liked? I really liked when she was complaining about the cornflakes being soggy because the German man he didn't fight. He just thought this is with the little girl because when he first brought her to the cheap cafe, she fought him and he fought her back. But when she's like complaining about the cornflakes, he's like, okay, let Alice have what she wants. I think that's an interesting thing that may show that he is changing in some ways in their relationship. My favorite scene is when the little girl is his wingman toward the end. So she approaches the young woman and says, does he look like my dad? And then I thought that was just hilarious. There are two scenes that I rather liked. One is when they're getting their picture taken. At first he's frowning and she smiles and they're both frowning. And then he smiles and she's frowning. And then they both smile, which I think sort of shows their changing relationship over the movie. I agree. And the scene where we first see Alice going through the revolving door and Philip joins her and going around and around in it, which I think is a metaphor for the movie as a whole. But now we can start about the pairing of the two films. What did you think of the pairing of the two films? I could see why you put them together. They both go on a road trip. Plot-wise, they're very similar. They both have sort of a new member of the family that they don't get along with, and then suddenly they have to get along with. A couple of other similar movies are like Up, Pixar movie, where the old man is suddenly, as a new member of his family, the little Asian Boy Scout. (laughs) Or The Professional, which is the American version of Leon or Gran Torino, or Logan, which I think is an excellent example too. But this one, I keep calling it PBJ, even though it's Peanut Butter Falcon. It sort of is a lot less plot-oriented, and that's great, because that way you get a chance to explore the relationships and the scenery. And the same thing with Alice in the Cities, is that the plot is less coupled, so that you can explore more of how they view the world and how the world is changing them. I liked it because it's about how doing something with someone with a different perspective, it doesn't necessarily always have to be big, but 
it can get you to think about things in a different way that your heart is always big enough to bring more people in it. And that's what the German guy learned with the little girl. So in comparing them to, I wanted to bring up two tropes that both fit into that are very standard for movies. And the first one is the road movie. What do you think of road movies in general? Do you enjoy them? And how do you think both of these work as road movies? The trope for road movies is you're usually moving towards something or running away from something. Pan Butter Falcon, they're doing both. They're running away from something. They're on the lam, but they do find the direction of, let's go to the wrestling camp. But with Alice in the Cities, they're actually running towards something, which is, we're going to go home. But they never actually reach home. So I thought that was a really interesting take. Do I enjoy road movies in general? Uh, I guess I never really thought about them as a genre in itself. One of my favorite road movies is Little Miss Sunshine. The van, it becomes actually a character or a family member in the movie, which is just hysteric. Family that doesn't get along, that learns to get along and accept their flaws along the road. For me, with road movies, one of the challenges I have with them is they always kind of feel episodic. You meet new people along the way, and the German movie did that, and also they did that in Peanut Butter Falcon. An example of a road movie, too, is the old classic planes, trains, and automobiles. That is the challenge always with road movies. And then I think, just from a very practical point of view, that road movies can be a little expensive to make because you have to keep moving your crew along the way. I can't say I like or dislike road movies. You pointed out that there are some problems with them. You really have to have an act two where interesting things happen. And so often in road movies, that's where they fall apart. The other ones I just like is when a group of people are forced to go on some journey together. They don't like each other. Like they have to take the ashes of their father down to the Pacific Ocean and toss them in bay in order to get their inheritance. And in, in so doing, they reconnect with each other, etc., etc. I, I intensely dislike those kind of movies. Road movies, to some degree, have changed over the years. Of course, the first road story that I'm really aware of is Ulysses, which I can't say is the first road story, but it's the most famous one and the most influential one, with Ulysses trying to get back home to Troy. But in the golden age of Hollywood, road movies were more about the mission of the characters, trying to get to a particular place or achieving some sort of goal. You have movies like It Happened One Night, about a runaway bride and a fired newspaper reporter needing a story. They find themselves first on a bus and then thrown off. And you have Sullivan's Travels about a director trying to do research for his next movie. And then in the 40s and 50s, you have lovers on the run or innocent people on the run. But their goals tend to be somewhat specific. But once we reach the 60s and 70s and existentialism has made its way over from Europe and modernism is dying, now it's not unusual for road movies to not be about the goal but about the existential and spiritual quest of the central character to find meaning in life and find themselves. And this is especially true of Alice in the Cities. It's also true to a great degree in Peanut Butter Falcon. But if you compare a movie like Alice in the Cities to North by Northwest, you see the huge difference. With Peanut Butter Falcon, each scene seemed to have a purpose to the overall goal, whereas Alice in the Cities was more a matter of this is what would happen when you're on a road trip experience and in that way as opposed to there's a lesson to be learned from each thing. It's just a series of moments with Alice. The boy hanging out by the jukebox listening to Can't Heat. The biggest thing there is Alice didn't finish her ice cream after wanting it so bad. I think a very good point there. And just on a technical note for filmmaking, because the equipment became lighter and lighter, it was easier to do a road movie. You could get a lot more moving shots. And I suspect that's why that the German filmmaker shot on 16 millimeters, so he didn't have to lump around this huge 32 millimeter camera. Well, actually, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> he wanted to shoot on a 35 millimeter camera, but couldn't get one. There was a new kind of camera that he wanted to use, but there were very few out, and so one wasn't just available. So he had to shoot on 16 millimeter. He wanted to shoot on a camera where it could be shown on a big screen in a movie theater. Though at the same time, he had to make it so that it could also be shown in the right ratio on television. So he had to, when he was filming it in 16 millimeter, he had to do it in such a way that one day, maybe it could be restored and be shown on the big screen, which it has been. Vendors made a lot of road movies. I mean, there was something about the road movies that lead themselves to existentialism and about people with no fixed phone, they're unsure about their lives, where they're going. Uh, they're sometimes goalless or the goals are vague. And so this was big for vendors. When he made Alice in the Cities, he was considering giving up making movies because his movies weren't pleasing him. And this was his fourth feature. The first was for college. The next two were adaptations. And he wanted to 
see if he could do something, his own story. He decided to do this, and he found his genre in the road movie, that that was a way that he could convey his life and what he saw about life. But the other trope, and I think you've mentioned a couple of movies like this, the other trope is the bonding of adults and children, or in Peanut Butter Falcon case, you might say a childlike character. And how do these two films compare with that? You have that clear moment in Peanut Butter Falcon where Child LaBeouf's character, Tyler, finds out that Zack is on the lamb, and that's when he you can tell that he actively decides to take Zack under his wing. I don't feel like the moment in, in Alice in the Cities is so pronounced. That's why I like mention about the cornflakes or like you talked about the, the revolving door because there isn't like this big let's hang a hat on it but that's part of kind of an existentialism where and everything has meaning and we don't know what's important and we do know what's important and so there's that push-pull always with existentialism well i think you have a point finally i decided it was when he left her at the police station she runs away and meets him at his car and he looks kind of relieved that she's shown up that he can now fulfill this existential need of his. But it is. It's very subtle. And people might be able to make an argument for other places being that moment when he does. Yeah. He agrees to bring the girl on a plane by himself without the mother. And then he arrives in Amsterdam. He's waiting for her to arrive. The German guy doesn't know what to do. So he just starts making decisions with the girl. But he actually starts to listen to her. She wants to eat here. She wants to eat there. She wants to stay at this place. And so he starts to listen to the girl. You could say that those are part of the journey where that they start to affect one another. I have a feeling you're not very familiar with Ben Benders as a filmmaker. No. No. You've sort of said a lot of your impressions of him now. You do find the movie maybe not your cup of tea. And I think some people might find it a bit slow and a bit vague, not dramatically sharp. And I think you would have some points there. The main purpose of a movie is to entertain. Anything after that is gravy. So you could argue that both movies are entertaining. So that makes both of them movies. And whether or not some people like it or don't like it, that's immaterial. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, both take you out and have you go to a place where you're entertained. Richard Brody of The New Yorker said, With this film, Benders crystallized his style of existential sentimentality. Meanwhile, Derek Malcolm of The London Evening Standard said, It is touching, but never sentimental. So I guess sentimentality might be in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm a story person. Story, story, story. So when I see something that challenges the, the formula of a story, I tend to like, I like films that take a little bit of risk. But not too much. And I think that this one's out of my league. This movie came out, gosh, when did I say? Was it 1974? This was the time when movies were changing. I go see a movie like Alice in the Cities, and it's not like any movie I've seen before. And I'm getting into that. I'm getting into different ways of making movies. Now, they don't always work. I did not like American Friend, for example. Because I still keep trying to figure out why people like Paris, Texas. But this one really got me. So if you had seen it maybe at the time and you were going through what I was going through, it might mean a bit more. Today, we've gone through the existentialism and come out the other side into us modernism, and it may not strike people as that unique or original anymore. I find Vim Vendors to be hit and miss. This best movie is probably Wings of Desire for me, which is about everybody has a guardian angel. They're always watching over you, though they can't always help you, but they're there to help guide you. They're eternal. If someone dies, they go to another person. But one of the angels falls in love with a human, and he has to decide whether to give up his wings. And if he gives up his wings, of course, he becomes human, and he will die one day. And it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous, black and white. Another one I always liked is Pina, which is a documentary about the choreographer, Pina. It was done in 3D. It's one of the few movies that I feel justified to be done in 3D. When you see the actual performances of your choreography, it's almost like you're there. But he was part of the new German cinema, or as I said, we call it the German New Wave, which lasted from about 1962 to 1982, probably a bit before your time. They were often financed by the government and by television. That's how they got their money. And they were often very small in the telling, but they caught on in Chicago when I was growing up there. They were very big at the Chicago Film Festival. They always tried to get the latest German New Wave. The most prominent at the time was my favorite, Rainer Werner Fassbender, but also Werner Herzog and Wim Wenders, as well as Wolfgang Peterson, who did Dark Boot, and Volker Schlondorf and Margarita von Trotta, Percy Adler. 
Many of them are still alive and making movies, including them vendors. When preparing this movie, when he was raising money and writing it, he had a stumbling block because a friend took him to see Paper Moon. And he found the film so similar to his that he was going to cancel the project. But Samuel Fuller, who is a popular filmmaker, especially in Europe, for reasons to be honest, escape me. I have no idea why Samuel Fuller is so popular. So that since, you know, you raise most of the money, you should just just keep on and do it. Just make it more your own movie. So I did a essentially right. You think about it, the Samuel Fuller sort of like getting notes. You give notes and you give really good notes. We all got to get notes. <laughs> <laughs> it was shot close chronological order, getting in North Carolina, then to New York, then to Amsterdam, then to Germany. As it progressed, it was more and more improvised. The exceptions tend to be in things like in cars or in rooms where for logistical reasons they had to keep to the script. I saw a scene where they were filming the car and they had to take off the side of the car and put a camera there that was three feet out to film him and then sometimes then they would do the reverse they would have it on the other side with the doors removed to film from that side there is a religious and spirituality to Tim Bender's life like LeBeau as I understand it he's what's called an ecumenical Christian which means he gives all religions equal weight and they should all come together in harmony. As a teenager, he wished to become a Catholic priest. He came from a traditional Catholic family that converted to Protestantism. So he's sort of working out his spirituality in these films, especially in these road films. What better way to have something where you can see it versus something that's internal that you can't really see? Because things inside your head sound very different than when you hear them out loud and see them out loud. Do you have a favorite performance? The Little Girl. Yes, everybody goes immediately to the little girl, Yellow Rotlander. <laughs> yeah, she really holds her own. You have to carry this movie and be believable instead of just some kid that's just delivering her, their lines. The German man in the movie needs to be understated so that Alice can be a little kid and a little over the top and bratty and sweet. All of that because he's in a kind of a malaise that she helps him wake up. So in a sense, it's sort of like Sleeping Beauty. She's the prince and... He's the sleeping princess. Yala, Rodlander, and Rudiger Vogler, they have a very nice chemistry together. But Rodlander gets most of the critical praise. She's very natural. It's not like she's acting. She's very convincing as just a real child. She didn't really continue her acting career. She didn't make one more movie years later for Vendors. She was in The Scarlet Letter that Vendors made the year before. She played Pearl, the illegitimate daughter. Rudiger Vogler went on for a much longer career. Sort of considered Vendors' alter ego when he's in a film. I'll point out two more aspects of it. The cinematography is by Robbie Mueller, who is a well-respected cinematographer, especially for his work with Vendors, Jim Jarmusch, and Lars Van Trier, especially in Breaking the Waves. He was known for his use of natural light, minimalist imagery, and his pioneering work in digital cinematography. He has since passed away. I believe he died of a heart attack when he was 78. And I think like Peanut Butter Falcon, the scenes outside feel the strongest here. The scenes inside sometimes feel a bit tilted. The music was scored by the German band Can, and I really liked the music. You really only notice it when they're fading to black, this haunting little score. It's funny because Can Heat, my sister and I know their song Going to the Country when we're in car trips together. It's Chuck Berry in there, right? He's in there too, yes. His song is a good one, and it's fun to hear the guys sing it a little bit later. It's kind of this callback to a nice song which spoke to where he had been in America. It really wasn't the song he wanted to use by Chuck Berry. The one he wanted to use, Chuck Berry was asking too much to use it, the scene from one of his concerts. So he went to a documentary filmmaker who had seen of Chuck Berry, but I think it was a different song than the one they wanted. And the documentary was leased it to vendors for much, much less than Chuck Berry wanted. The movie was well received by the critics, especially with the emphasis put on the look and the performance of, of Yellow Rock. Rock, Rock. In 2008, Philip French of The Observer called Rotlander's performance as Alice unforgettable. He went on to say that the film would not be able to be made today, partly because of the invention of the mobile phone, partly because of our obsessive fear of anything that might be interpreted as philia. And we've talked about this, how ridiculous this movie would be today. Because I'm thinking he would never be able to get her on the plane today. Her passport has a totally different name than his. What's he going to say? Well, the mother treated this little girl to me to take to Amsterdam, I'm sure the airline is going to say, oh, fine, just go ahead. Well, yeah. and the scene with him taking the bath, 
without any bubbles. Oh, that's very European. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I said that was in an American film. Where he's like, uh-oh, but in a European film, I said, oh, okay. But you're right. That is kind of an eye-opening scene. In 1988, Jonathan Rosenbaum hailed Allison the Cities as one of Bender's strongest works, calling it a penchant hybrid of European and American elements with its effective broodings over American and German landscapes and their ambiguous photographic representations, which I'm not sure totally what it means, but it does sound like something Rosenbaum would say. In 2016, U.S. director Alison Anders called Alice in the Cities one of my favorite films and a guiding light and praised Alice as one of the screen's most multifaceted child characters and one of the most empowered female characters in cinema to this day. And the AV Club also described Alice as resembling a genuine little kid and praised the photography as gorgeous. So yeah, it's Alice's film. But with that, here's some more information about the film. The film won the Best Film Award at the German Film Critics Association Awards, which is the same as our National Society of Film Critics. It is the first part of Vendor's Road Movie Trilogy, which also includes The Wrong Move and Kings of the Road. Then Vendor's is uncredited as The Man by the Jukebox early on. Peter Hanke, who is a big influence on the movie, it's because Peter Hanke was a single father. He can be seen at about 1 hour and 22 minutes in the Chuck Berry concert next to Rudiger Vogler's character. The novel Tender is the Night by F. Scott Fitzgerald is seen on the coffee table of Phil Winter's girlfriend. A character in the novel, Rosemary Hoyt, was inspired by Fitzgerald's affair with actress Lois Moran, who appears in this film as an airport hostess, and it was Moran's last movie. And at the airport in Amsterdam, an announcement can be heard for a Mr. Vendors coming from New York. With that, we need to start closing out, and I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. Well, I'm going to say my apocalyptic Thanksgiving, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. The movie Up, Please Stand By, which is a small little film. It's a good one. Dakota Fanning plays a young woman obsessed with Star Trek. Again, I also recommend for our movie My Apocalyptic Thanksgiving which is available to stream on iTunes, Apple TV, Amazon Prime, YouTube, Google Movies, Hoopla, Xbox. It's on 11 platforms. Personal recommendation, if you are interested in the history, I can't say enough about Code of Freaks, which is a wonderful documentary about the history of disabilities in films, as well as Chained for Life, where they break the stereotype and they show someone who's disfigured as a romantic lead, kind of like Mask. That's a really good example because Mask is also somebody who has disfigurement, breaks the stereotype and becomes a romantic lead. As he was talking remind me there's this documentary called life animated where it's a gentleman he has i think autism and he used disney films to learn how to speak well i've chosen three films two that i have mentioned and one television series the eighth day is 1996 drama with daniel Otel and pascal duquin about an unhappy and uptight salesman who meets a young man with down syndrome who escaped from the mental home where he stays and they form a bond as i said i actually would have chosen this film to go with being a falcon but it's not available Paper Moon is, of course, Peter Bogdanovich's 1973 dramedy about a con artist Bible salesman who gets stuck with a preteen girl who claims to be his illegitimate daughter. From New Zealand and director Taiki Watiti, we have 2016's Hunt for the Wilder People about a rebellious teen and his foster uncle who go missing in the New Zealand bush country. It's a very sweet movie. And the television series Life Goes On from 1989 to 1993 about the ups and downs of the Thatcher family, especially Corky, played by Chris Burke, a young man with Down syndrome. And another TV show is called Atypical, which is on Netflix, which is awesome. Right. What is next? What should we be expecting from you? I wrote this movie called Three Wishes, and it's about an Asian woman who has a fairy godmother grant her three wishes in a psych ward. We are developing the script right now. I'm going to direct it, and we're producing it together. It's really about a woman who comes to terms with her father's death, and her brother involuntarily commits her in a psych ward instead of dealing with his own emotions. Please stand by for that. Uh, me, personally, I'm wor working on this half-hour TV comedy called Donut King. A very successful businessman who's Filipino wants to bestow his three children, who are sort of misfits, his successful donut franchise. Just to play on being Filipino and Catholic is that the donut machine spits out these oil stains on the walls, and he interprets them as saints. And then every week, they have to mimic the life of a saint in that episode. 
in order to inherit the donut store. Well, that sounds like fun. Well, I'll list my usual litany. I am a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Kastner screenplay consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. And I'm an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous episode was our Christmas special with blogger and film enthusiast Jay Cluett, who is my annual Christmas guest, where we talk National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation and A Christmas Tale, two films about family gatherings at Christmas. The next episode will be with Todd Liebenau of the Forgotten Film Cast, where we will talk Ed Wood and Sullivan's Travel, two films about directors trying to get their film vision off the ground. So with that, Richard and Holly, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my show. Well, thank you. And I'll just say both of us have gotten notes from Howard, and Howard gives really incredibly great notes. Yeah, thank you very much, Howard. And thanks for having us.